Our first reading is from Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. It is taken from the English Standard Version. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are on Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The word of the Lord. As the kids head out, let me uh, give you a little bit of a picture of me several years ago. I was a young teenager, and in those middle school, early high school years, I lived by a fear-based obedience to God, a fear-based obedience to God. See, I was a Christian from an early age. I believed in the cross that Jesus died for me, that I was saved by faith. And yet, and yet, when I sinned, which I did, as a preteen and teenager, I felt incredibly guilty, racked with fear. One of my greatest fears in those years was what if, what if Christ would return at the very moment I was sinning? Surely I'd be left behind. It was a deep fear with deep guilt. So jumping back out of that to just thinking about the mindset of that kid years ago, we all have a view of reality, a view of the world, a view of ourselves. It's a framework, we all have a framework around which we build our life and make sense of the world. A system of belief, a worldview, a plausibility structure, something that we build everything around. It includes assumptions about who we all are as humans and why we are here. It incorporates our hopes and our fears, our values, our aims and directions in life. And this framework for belief is affected by the opportunities and hindrances we might have in life, the tragedies and successes we deal with in life, our family, our friendships, our location, our personality. Your framework for understanding the world is gonna be very different if you are an orphan wandering into Europe out of the Middle East right now than if you are a kid with a complete nuclear family who heads off to the bus stop tomorrow morning. 
Whatever our belief system is, our framework, it's the lens through which we view the world, and it shapes how we live and how we respond to life when it comes our way. To put it in Christian terms, we all have a theology. Theology proper is the study of God. But in the sense that I'm talking about it right now, we all have a theology which is a view of the ultimate God in Christian terms, the world around us and our own lives. We are all theologians, therefore. Some of us are unknowing theologians. Some of us are lazy. Some of us are just bad at it. But we're all theologians, whether we want to be or not. And that's why week in and week out, we go back to the Bible here. Because Christians believe that this is God's word to us, his revelation of who he is and what this world is about. And it is meant to shape our framework and our ultimate reality. This fall, as I mentioned earlier, we are looking at Ephesians. We're gonna spend 11 weeks going through a very short five-page in my Bible letter in the Bible. 11 weeks. One commentator has over 1,000 pages written on this one little letter. We're gonna spend 11 weeks digging into it. Why? Because Ephesians is one of Paul's short, succinct summaries of the Christian faith and life. It's split up into two halves, chapters one through three, about our calling and what we're supposed to believe, and then chapters four through six, our conduct as Christians, how we're supposed to live, what we are to believe, and how we're to live. The whole aim of this time in Ephesians over the next 11 weeks is to shape our belief system and our life in line with the gospel. We want to answer and be able to answer who we are in Christ and how then we should live. Or as we're subtitling it, becoming who we are in Christ. So to enter into it, we're going to jump right into verse 3. Verses 3 through 14. Paul begins writing after a a brief salutation to the church in Ephesus. Blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verses 3 all the way to 14, which we don't have up right here, actually in the Greek is one long sentence. Several times in Ephesians, Paul writes these long, extremely long run-on sentences where there's phrase upon phrase upon phrase. It's really bad grammatically. It's really hard to translate. What it's like, it's like an excited kid who returns from an amusement park for the first time. He starts talking about a roller coaster and then the water ride and then cotton candy and then the merry-go-round and then ice cream and it all rolls out at once full of excitement and joy. Paul is using this method of just pouring out his excitement And there's a rhetorical reason for it. It's called amplification, which to simplify that is like putting bold and underlined letters in your emails. Or when talking with somebody, it's shouting. Or if you're like Twitter-gramming them, it's, it's putting lots of emojis after your sentence. It's saying, I really mean this. I'm so excited about this. Paul is incredibly stirred up and he wants our emotions to be stirred up. And he wants us to respond with worship and praise of the God he's talking about. Why? Why should we worship and praise this God? Well, he goes on to explain the depths of the reason we should be so excited. In verse four, he writes, 
Even as he chose us in him, he, God the Father, chose us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Let's just take a little bit of time to walk through this passage, little bits at a time, not enough to do justice to what's being said here, but just to get a sense of what we need to be believing and understanding. Before creation, this is saying, God chose us. What does that tell me? It tells me God was not surprised by Adam and Eve's sin. They didn't eat of the fruit, and he was like, oh, geez, what am I going to do now? He knew. He knew enough in advance that he chose Christ to die. Christ's death on the cross was not plan B once Adam and Eve had screwed up. It was always plan A. It was plan A to reveal himself and to restore a broken humanity, including us. And it's very, very personal. Listen to how the message puts this very verse. Long ago, before he laid down earth's foundations, he had us in mind, had settled on us as the focus of his love. When we talk about God's choosing, his predestining purposes, it is a good thing. It is God's love for us from all time that we who put our trust in Christ have always been in God's plan. That's good news. And God's plan is that he would make a holy and blameless people. He would form us into a holy and blameless people. Let's stop on those words for a moment. They come from the sacrificial system, from the Hebrew Old Testament. It was sacrificial bulls and lambs that had to be holy, meaning set apart, and blameless, without blemish, without spot or blemish. And what Paul is saying is that our destiny, our eternal destiny, is to be made fully like Christ, to be fully perfect. But the gospel also tells us that this is already how God views us that he already views us as holy and blameless if our faith is in Christ. We've talked about that here before, but let's make a little illustration to make more sense of it. I need somebody from the first couple rows here. Uh, Owen Taylor, thank you for volunteering. Come on down here. Now, Owen looks very sweet and innocent. Come on up here. But if what the Bible says is true, he is a sinner too. So he has sin all around him and on him. And basically, when you look at him, you would see him as a sinner. And if he was really honest with himself, when he looked at himself, he would see himself clothed in his sin. But the gospel tells us this, that when we put our faith in Christ, God no longer views us with our sin, but he views us through the lens of Jesus Christ and his perfect righteousness. We may feel and see ourselves as sinful. The world around us may look at us and know that we are hypocrites and failures, but when God looks at us, he sees the perfect holy righteousness of Jesus Christ who was holy and blameless, and he attributes that to us. Our eternal destiny to be holy and blameless is our status before God right now. It is how he views us, even if we don't feel this way. Thank you, Owen. You can take those down with you. I don't want the sin. 
If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live before God, but Christ. Discipleship is becoming who we are already and who we will one day be in heaven, holy and blameless. In verse 5, he tells us, In love, God the Father predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. More good news. We are adopted as sons. Now that sounds like it's excluding half of the population. Adopted as sons. Well, hey, I'm a woman, right? I'm a girl. But the reason why this is good news is in the ancient world, the status of a son was very distinct from a girl. Women did not have value on their own without being associated with a man, either a father, a husband, a brother. You had no rights to own property, and you had no way forward in the community. Paul is very intentionally talking to men and women and telling them, you, in Christ, are adopted as sons. Your worth and your value and your status is not based on your genetics or your nationality or even what you've done or can't do. Whether you are a delete in India or an orphan in the Middle East, whether you feel less than other people or your chromosomes are messed up, you are a son of God the Father. All of us equally heirs of eternity. The other reason why adoption language is such good news in the Bible is because Paul is speaking to a Gentile Roman audience. Well, Ephesians were Greeks, but they lived under Roman law. In Roman law, if you were adopted, you could not lose your status as an adopted son. Meaning this, a son by birth could be disinherited if he was completely rebellious. But by Roman law, an adopted son could not be disinherited. Think about the security and assurance Paul is trying to give the Ephesians and us. Long before he said, let there be light, he had you in mind. Your salvation is secure. It doesn't depend on us, but on God and what he has done and has promised to continue doing. We have redemption through him, is what Paul goes on to say. In verse 7, he explains it pretty clearly, what the big hope is and, and what he has done for us. This is the basic summary of the gospel message that we talk about week in and week out. In him, in Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. That word redemption, again, we're just walking through this, which we don't normally do. Redemption was that of a slave or a prisoner who is set free. And when you use the word redemption, it meant that you had a debt to pay off, and that debt was paid in full. To be redeemed is to have the debts that we owe paid for. Somebody buys our freedom. What is the debt we owe? He talks about that in the very next phrase. The forgiveness of our trespasses. Our debt is that we are all sinners. All of us trespass. All of us wear our sin 
externally and internally. We all reject God. We try to live apart from God. This gospel declaration is that Jesus pays for our freedom by his blood on the cross. That's good news. How do we appropriate it? He tells us towards the end of this passage in verse 13 and 14. In Jesus Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. You hear that? Hear the gospel. You just heard it. Hear the gospel and believe. That's how you are redeemed and forgiven and adopted. And when you do put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. The Holy Spirit is given to those who believe. It is God dwelling in and with us and it is a seal and a guarantee. Again, just breaking apart words here. Seal could be a seal on a letter that indicated who wrote the letter, but in this, in this instance, it's being used in the other sense of a brand on a cattle. Why is a brand put on the cattle? To identify who the owner of the cattle is. The Holy Spirit is the brand on us to say we belong to God the Father. Why was that good? Because it was, a, it was an identification of security for the cattle that they could not be stolen. Do you get what's being said here? When you enter into faith in Jesus Christ, God places his Holy Spirit on you that is the indication to Satan that you cannot take him anymore. This is my child, my son and daughter, hands off. Ultimately, all that belong to God will be returned to him. It is a source of security and safety for us. And it's also a guarantee, the passage says. A guarantee can be something like uh, an engagement ring that says, I promise to do something. But it can also be, and I think that's what it is here, as several commentators put it, a down payment or the first installment of payments. When you enter into faith in Christ, the Spirit of God enters into you and is the first installment of future payments. What are the future payments? Heaven. Meaning this, the Spirit of God dwelling in us is our first taste of heaven. And if you've not experienced this, talk to somebody in here who has experienced the Spirit of God. You see, when the Holy Spirit enters us, there is a spark of joy, of peace. There's a spark when you pray Sometimes when I'm studying the Bible, there's the spark of, I'm learning God. That's the Holy Spirit in me, sparking me to joy in studying God's word. It's the assurance of forgiveness. When I am doubting my forgiveness, it's the Holy Spirit who returns me to the grace and forgiveness of God. It's the Holy Spirit who brings healing and transformation in my life and in others. The Spirit of God is that first taste of what is to unfold one day when we're in God's presence completely and fully forever. It's the appetizer of what's to come. And it's the guarantee, the seal, that we are heirs, that we will inherit eternity. And it can't be taken away. A secure future with the Father in his eternal home. Paul's aim in this whole long section 
is assurance. And it's basically this, know who you are. Know who you are by believing whose you are. Know who you are by believing whose you are. And allow realities like the truths that are spoken here that we've been just pulling apart, allow these truths to reshape your worldview, your belief system, and to align your life with God and his purposes and what he says. So what does that actually look like? How might the gospel, how might the gospel's assurance of identity and of status as a child of God who is loved and chosen, a future that is secure, how might that, that identity and status and future shape us if we really believed it? How might it affect our thinking? Well, let's go back to middle school me. I was earnest in my faith, but I had excessive guilt and a fear of hell. This was my experience. I believed that Jesus died for my sins. Yet, again and again, I felt incredibly guilty when I did sin. I knew that if I confessed my sins, they were forgiven, but I was never sure I had confessed hard enough. I feared that Christ would return or I would die in the midst of sin, and then to hell I go. And you see, that thought process was a belief system that was dependent on me, on my behavior, my emotional fervor of faith, the amount of earnest repentance when I did sin. It was dependent on me and my behavior and my emotional state as opposed to being dependent on Christ and what he had done. What I needed was to understand the riches of God's grace for us. I didn't need to be told, hey, Johnny, don't worry, or it's not really sin, or there's no such thing as hell. What I needed was to believe, to actually believe that I was chosen, an adopted son, an heir of eternity. I needed to understand and believe that I was secure. And I needed to realize that God views me not with my rags, but as if he's looking at Jesus. And in the years that followed, as I began to study and understand God more deeply, it was really post-college, looking at sections like Ephesians 1 and 2, that I began to rethink my status before God as dependent on him and not on me. And you know what that brought? Peace to this anxious 13-year-old. It dissolved my fears. It disarmed Satan, that voice that says, are you sure you're forgiven? Are you sure you've done enough? And in the process, it deepened my joy and increased my desire for God. Being assured of your status before God is not actually a reason to go on and do whatever you want in sin. What I've found is when people really have an assured status before God, it does what it did in my life. It caused me to want to know and follow God more and more and more out of joy, out of pleasure, instead of obeying out of fear. How might these truths in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 affect our thinking and change our life. Well, let's think of a couple of other examples. For instance, why might I put others down or be jealous of someone? 
Not that any of us have ever done that, but why might I put somebody else down or be jealous of them? It's because my identity is based on measuring up. And so I'm always going around comparing myself to others. So I either need to put them down to keep me above, or if they're succeeding, I'm gonna be jealous because I'm losing status and place. But if I really believe that I am chosen and adopted, then my identity is what God says about me. It's how he views me, not how I measure up to the world, not even how I feel. Then, and only then, can I love and even enjoy the prettier, smarter, more talented person because their greatness can't reduce my child of godness. No matter how much they succeed, it doesn't reduce my place before God. Let's think of another one. If I'm the kind of person who highly values success and accomplishment, then it's likely that I'll be a snob. I'll be selective in who I spend time with. They must be accomplished too, must be worthy of my successes so that they don't diminish my status before others. I need other people to see me as hanging out with the accomplished crowds, just like I am. I'll be a snob. But if I believe my worth is not based on success or accomplishments, but instead is based on what God has done in redeeming and forgiving me by grace, if I believe that I did nothing to deserve his redemption or forgiveness, and that all of us are equally indebted to God, then I'll be more loving with those who aren't successful or can't increase my status because I'll see that none of us can earn our way into God's favor and all of us are dependent upon his grace. And I'm no better or worse than you. We're all worse and all saved by grace. Do you see how it works? There's a benefit to just simply exploring truths in Scripture, to know God and to understand and believe the gospel. Oftentimes when we open the Bible, we go to the first question, which is, what does this mean to me? And it's, how does this tell me what to do at work or raise my kids or deal with my teachers? How does this tell me how to be a better person? And what Paul wants us to do for several weeks is to sit in what God has done and who he is. And let that affect our thinking, transform our view of the world around us and ourselves. It's vital, it's integral to living out the life we are made to live. The pinnacle of this whole passage, according to several commentators, is verse 10. This is where God sums up everything he intends to do in this universe. The plan for the fullness of time is to unite all things in him, in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. God's plan is to unite all things in him. What that means is this, the main problem that all of us have 
that all creation has is disharmony. We are not united with Christ or our creator. And we see this because most of us have marred belief systems. Even those of us who claim to be Christians have some version of false belief or mistrust or wrong view of who God is and what he has done. By nature, we distrust God or don't really even know him. We live apart from God and try to be our own Savior and Lord. And so it's somewhat like this. Let's say that each one of us has a way of organizing our life, approaching the world around us, and we think it's a pretty good system. We think we're off to exactly how it should look. But it's not much different than this. So if our belief system and the way we approach the world is like playing a guitar, we can have a very thoughtful belief system, think it sounds great. We can have a morally successful life. We can try really, really hard and be incredibly earnest and devout. But apart from Christ, we're out of tune. We are misplaying the instrument of our life. No matter how thoughtful you are, how full of intellectual completeness, no matter how good your life is, if you are apart from Christ, if you are not in him, you are playing the wrong instrument, the wrong chord, the wrong notes, you're out of harmony with God. And God's plan for the fullness of time, what is it? It's to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That means the end or goal of the entire cosmos, the end or goal of everything is to be at the feet of Jesus. To be reconciled to God by being in and under Jesus Christ. And this is the issue. Jesus Christ must be God. Either he determines my framework, he determines my reality, my values, my hopes, my dreams, or I do. Being a disciple is learning to play the instrument of our lives with his song, in his band, under his direction, in harmony with him. Let's pray. God, it is so easy to live our life on our own, to live as if we are in control. It's also so easy to doubt, to not trust what you have done and who you are. Give us eyes to see and grace to walk in the good news of what you have done in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.
Worthy of all I praise is.